Welcome to another episode of Becoming Referrable, the podcast that helps you be the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Julie Littlechild, and on this week's show, Steve and I are joined by Susan Bradley. Susan is the founder of the Sudden Money Institute, which focuses on equipping advisors with both the skills and the tools that they need to really focus on the personal side of money and help clients going through transitions, which I think we can agree is probably every client at some point. She shares this great story about the moment she realized that advisors, and she was one at the time, were not formally equipped to deal with many of the issues that came up when clients were going through a significant transition in their lives, and she wanted to fill that gap. Susan is the creator of the Certified Financial Transitionist designation. She's the author of the Sudden Money Managing a Financial Windfall book, and she's a TEDx speaker. In our conversation, we talk with Susan about change and transition and how she helps advisors deal with both of those things more effectively. She talks about and shares the skills that are required and some of the gaps that she sees for advisors today. So we talk about how these skills can impact your business and how they can make you more referable. And I know you're going to love what she has to share. And with that, let's get to our conversation with Susan. Well, Susan, welcome. So happy to have you here today. Yeah, welcome, Susan. My pleasure. Um, so, look, I've got so many questions b- to ask you. I should say, though, that, you know, the last time I saw you, and, and I can't say this about everyone, we were um, driving around the streets of Mumbai trying to find a tailor. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that was my last experience with you. This will be a little different. I think I think we're now in, in, in a territory we know something about. God, we could have used Steve that been. day, too. It would have been good. We probably, we probably could have. We probably could have. It was a great experience. We so Susan and I had the opportunity to speak with Network FP in Mumbai, and it was just a, a just an awesome experience. But we did go on a little adventure. Oh, that's very cool. Well, you know, what's a trip to um, India without an adventure like that, right? Exactly. Um, so, Susan, look, before I kind of jump into the 101 questions I'd love to ask you, it might be helpful just to start with a little background. So maybe you can just sort of tell us a little bit about the work that you do with advisors and and maybe even just the path to this point. Mm, path to this point. Okay. Um, my background is that I am a CFP from the early 80s. Love the profession. Um, always have and probably always will. But I'm no longer a practitioner. I sold my practice uh, almost 15 years ago so that I could concentrate fully on uh, what was then the Sudden Money Institute, still is, but we have an active division that we talk about a lot now. The way I made that shift is I realized through some um, events that uh, my training had not really prepared me for people that were in um, a, what we call a sudden money experience. Um, and I thought beyond that, that as I was looking, looking at divorce and widowed um, people and um, business owners, et cetera, I realized that when life changed, money changed, and um, I didn't really have a change management model built into my financial planning uh, model that I was using. I'd been using for over 20 years at that point. Well, and Susan, if we, could we dig into that a little? Because if if I understand, if I remember correctly, you know that 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 uh, that um, exploration on your part actually came out of a class action lawsuit. That's right. 
That's right. It was a group of 300 or so women, and it was against a Dow Chemical for um, actual impossible medical complications because of breast implants. And the lead lawyer on this, who was the um, lead partner in a major um, PI firm, was telling me about what the women were doing. They were what we now call future spending. They were making commitments for um, to other people, to themselves, uh, mortgages, cars, etc., that they would take care of when the money came in. And that's a shocking thing for a financial planner to hear. And when I said, how many people will have money a year after you get it for him? And he said, slim to none. And I was absolutely shocked. And I said, that just can't be. That just can't be. And he said, it's not my job. Just like pass the salt. And that comment really, uh, when I look back on it, I didn't understand that. That changed the direction of my career and, and my life. Uh, and I went to fill in the blanks and figure out what I could do. I was going to write a white paper for that firm. And we had negotiated that. And I thought other people in the profession would have done this ahead of me. So I went to the academics. I went to some of the, the, the larger chapters, um, trying to find somebody to tell me about it. And I was just going to write about it. I didn't need to create it. But it didn't exist. And Dow went into bankruptcy and so did many of the women. So it just wasn't okay. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, I couldn't leave it alone. So that's that's the beginning. And when you say um, it, I mean, what what was the problem that you were trying to solve for at the time and continue to do today, I guess? Well, in general terms, um, I thought the problem for, say, future spending or for a widow or for um, people retiring that were making um, choices and decisions that really seemed to be against their well-being, I thought the problem was financial literacy. And if you look at it from a point of view of financial literacy, you will frequently get nowhere. It's really transition literacy. And uh, I had been in the financial literacy uh, movement since, I guess, the, the beginning of it. And Nefi and people like that are doing fabulous work. And it's really, really important. But it's, it does not cut it when life is shifting, when money is changing and life is changing. It is a transition. And we did not have a financial transition model. How to help people anticipate, manage uh, expectations, how to sort and prioritize the flood of decisions, how to help people make one or two decisions when it looks like they have a hundred, how to get comfortable with uncertainty and give yourself time to figure it out. Um, how to understand what really needs to happen in meetings and communication and uh, presenting information and helping people when they're cognitively impaired for a while, when they have language impairment. It's all temporary. Um, Well-recognized, the um, psychologists um, call it, um, uh, they call it a disorder. They call it adjustment disorder. Um, so there's, it's the problems are seen by many different uh, disciplines, but in our discipline, we really needed a way, I thought, to step in and address the challenges and help people make good, strong decisions instead of uh, a range of regrettable ones. 
Well, so you I, you have this great TED talk, by the way, and I'll make sure we put the link in the, in the show notes. And you start by saying, you know, change will launch the next chapter of your life, whether you want it to or not. Which I thought is is, is you know a great a great comment. So it's it sounds like it started with tackling change about. Uh, what was then, I guess, the sudden money concept. But you're talking about change and transition in a much broader context, it seems to me. Yeah, the more I got into this, um, the more I realized the depth and um, the, the, the whole scope of it. And, you know, it, it's a forest through the trees kind of thing. Back then, I didn't really see that transitions and change drove our industry. And it's clear as day now. And more people are starting to see it now, but we didn't use the word transition. Uh, change management was pretty radical 20 years ago. Um, so when we're looking at this, this situation, um, if we don't have training, it is normal for advisors to step away from the personal side and keep presenting the technical information which is like the, the financial literacy. It's the correctness of uh, you know, what the algorithms say and, and what the cash flow uh, indicates and things like that. Susan, what I love about your about your insight about this is that you know I hear a lot of advisors talking about identifying people who have money in motion, and they're just looking at it as as a technical exercise. Um, but you know what what you developed is is what I would call a, a psychosocial niche. You know, so you're addressing not just the financial aspects of it, but you know, but how you prepare people to be in a position to understand and accept your advice. And so it, it, it goes just beyond the, the financial planning concepts. Yeah, it really had to, Steve, because the more you, you look at this, as we did in the um, early 2000s, um, it really, if you look at it from this perspective in tr tr traditional financial planning that I, as I said, I embraced and I, I hoped that I was well-trained in, um, when you look at people going through these major life events, our uh, process is a mess. It's, it's woefully uh, short-sighted. Um, and it becomes the client's fault when they don't make good decisions or they freeze up and make no decisions or they have the money intact, but their relationships have fallen apart. There's all this, um, I think, unnecessary uh, loss uh, of well-being, let's keep it broad like that. And there is no profession like the financial planning-based profession. Now we call it the financial transitionist profession. But there is no profession in the world that can address this like like we can. If, if you look up WebMD and you look up um, that disorder, the adjustment disorder, they say you go to the doctor and the doctor does MRIs and things like that and sees if you're you have some compromise physiologically. If not, go home and deal with it or go to a psychiatrist. And that's really what it says. But they yet see all the behaviors, compromising behaviors that we see. It's just that's their discipline. That's their responsibility. Uh, so they see it that way. We see it from the money side. But if you expand our profession to be the whole person, the human, we talk about the future is human. If you see it from the human side, you can't leave that personal part undone. You can't, you can't continue without real um, uh, measurable and continuous expertise on the personal side. So do you think the reasons that when you say 
that uh, that the the planning profession wasn't necessarily delivering on this for many years. Do you think it was an issue of skill set? Do you think it was an issue, perhaps, of fear of of just looking at going that deep on some of these things, or or maybe just perspective, not looking at the whole human in the way that you are? What, what do you think caused that? I think it's where our culture was at back then. In the, I, I started in the 80s, 80s, 90s, uh, early 2000. It became more, uh, more the, the view of the whole person was really starting to take shape in the early 90s. Um, but the, the industry is really focused on bottom line and bottom line was easier to measure it if you stuck to the numbers. Um, I mean, look at how much trouble parts of the industry have with just accepting fiduciary responsibility. And to me, fiduciary responsibility is just the beginning. It's you know, we we all need to be rather behind uh, beyond that. So if it, if we weren't even willing to do that, you know, it's the culture of the industry, the culture of of the, the countries. So if you're looking at bottom line that way um, and it, it was pretty easy to measure that because the, it was investment based. People walked into a, a professional financial professional's office, usually through the financial door. They had money, they had questions, they had situations that they wanted to prepare for. But if you take a, a get to a higher balcony and you look at our profession, what we were really doing is we were, we were in the business of life transitions and we didn't even know it. We were preparing people for these life events. People hired you for retirement. People hired you for that accumulation. People hired you to, um, to transfer their assets in a way that made sense for their, their family, to manage risk, to manage cash flow and retirement. But they were preparing, people wanted to be prepared for these big events. And so we were in the business of preparing for managing and adapting to life events, but we weren't standing on that balcony then. So we didn't see it that way. We saw it as a numbers thing and we got really good at it and we are good at it. And the technology that's coming out is fantastic for supporting that. But that other part of the equation that I would, I would argue is equally important and equally complex and the, neuropsychologists will tell you where all decisions are made is on the personal side. And we've just not been ready for that. So, so Susan, how, how do you help advisors uh, help their clients deal with those kinds of transitions? Well, as you, as you, you I think, no, we have the a certification program because we've come to think that this is so important. It needed to do something we resisted for our first uh, 12 or 13 years. We didn't want to have another certification, certainly not a sudden money certified, whatever. It sounded like an asset grab, to tell you the truth. Um, but as we studied it and did more research, et cetera, we realized that we needed very specific skill sets. We needed protocols and we needed a continuous training track that was practical for the average financial planner, anywhere from the, um, the lower income families to the highest net worth families, um, in the private banking to the one-off financial planning office uh, and all the brokerage. These problems that are challenges, it's not really a problem. Life events are really usually good things. 
and people are not always hair on fire freaking out and you know imploding their life <laughs> thank goodness but it does yeah, right. happen and you want to keep them from that you know to the the edge of the abyss um and there's process you can do to help clients even before it, as soon as uh, an event is identified even if it's retirement five years out so they've already started their transition so, so what what are some of those building blocks of skills that that they need to be able to help clients through these thanks for asking i was going off in my tangents as you know i can um, <laughs> 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 so um, the, the first thing that, that we teach, the first tool, there are nine tools in our 12-month program that's broken into six um, two-month modules. And the first tool that we have is a bit abstract, but it's a way of having conversations with the client about what matters. It's called purpose, method, outcome, where we converse with the client and help them establish what is their emotional why behind whatever it is, um, the, their engagement with you to their, um, their, their divorce or their any, any major uh, issue. Before we go into the how are we gonna do this, we wanna know the why. And it's a very strong thing to do because it helps client and advisor go to the, the truth place when the going gets tough. And it usually does get a little confusing at least. The next um, tool that we work with in the beginning is a communication preference tool where we don't tell someone who they are in terms of communication. We let them tell us, but people need a way to really think about it and identify and articulate what would be best for them in meetings. How are they going to be comfortable and productive before a meeting, at a meeting, after a meeting? How do they like to see information? Some people like the whole McGill and they got to read it all. Other people just want to see two bullet points and tell me what to do. If you don't know the difference and all the in-between, um, you, you spend time that doesn't need to be spent and, and maybe even keep people from their decision-making. Um, also, how people make decisions. Some people need to process for two weeks after a meeting. Some people want quiet time in a meeting. Um, once you understand how they are best, at uh, meetings, decisions, and assessing information. It is so easy from a practice management point of view to set it up so that each client is really at their best. And it doesn't mess with um, the efficiency of practice management. There's, so what we do, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, just to, to, to sort of highlight how that works, I, that when, when you and I spoke at one point before, you had a really good example of helping people find the, you know their, their their comfortable way of doing that. And you told me the story of one advisor who found who was asking client the, the one particular client about that, and they said, "Well, I just need ten or fifteen minutes of quiet time to do that." And so, can you tell us a little bit about how the advisor dealt with that? Yeah, and that was someone who had worked with that advisor for many years. He was a business owner. He came in twice a year. He did these like two hour, you know, get it all done kind of meetings. And then he would leave with all the decisions to make and not make another decision until the next meeting. Because he was busy, you know? He'd sure. walk out the door and think, oh, I gotta get gas before I go to this board meeting. Oh, my kids need this. And it, it, he's forgotten. Yeah. So when they did this, so we don't do it just with new clients in transition, we do it with all clients. Um, he said, you know, I, I don't make my decisions very well. Uh, and I know that that kind of bugs you a bit. And that was a joke. Uh, he said, but if you could just leave me alone 
for 10, 15 minutes, I could probably make most of the decisions while I'm still here. So the advisor agreed that when they got to the end of the meeting, the advisor got up, went for some coffee, returned a phone call, whatever, came back in, and the client typically made all the decisions. Sometimes if there was a big, big decisions, it would take a while afterwards, but most of the, you know, sign it, get it done was happening right then and there. It's pretty efficient. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some clients can't take a long meeting, particularly in transition. And if you can figure that out with them, when you do this exercise, you know that they need to keep meetings under 30 minutes. You're going to say the most important thing first, and you're going to have one topic at a time, and you'll probably have four or five meetings, but they'll be short and they'll be effective. And the client builds confidence by doing it that way. If you overwhelm them, then they think they're a mess and this thing is going to go on forever. And, you know, they they have a lot of fear and concern about themselves as well as the, the whole process. And these things are not hard to do. It's just you need a, um, a process to follow. So we have the people in training do six of these with clients, write up their experience, and then we discuss them in study groups and in uh, larger group experience calls. So advisors can hear each other. One advisor in India yesterday said, I didn't like doing this, I didn't feel comfortable, it wasn't natural, I read the textbook, I did everything, I wrote down all the questions. So we don't have people do it mechanically, but she was doing it that way, she went by the book. And she said, I was literally sweating, <laughs> and so I did it. And you got to give her credit. And she said, but my clients loved yeah. it. And they talked for 40 minutes. Usually it's you know, five to 10. And I learned things about these people that I had never, ever known before. Uh -huh. So that was her report on, on her first time. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes it's just uh, letting the client talk about what they're going through before you actually get to the financial agenda, right? Oh, absolutely. That's uh, We do that in our decision-free zone. We ask people just to let it all out. What are they thinking about? What's going on? Who's supporting them? What do they What do they worry about? What are they hoping for? And as we're listening, we're, we're really listening. So at the end, we can say, okay, so this is what I'm hearing. And you capture uh, what you heard in, you know, single words or just a few words, and we scatter it across a page. So there's a visual that confirms to somebody that there's an awful lot going on. You can't possibly act on all of this. So we want them to have an emotional and cognitive reaction that it's time now to organize all this stuff. So from there, and, and, yeah. yeah. So when, when Julie and I did our study last year, you know, one of the things that we found was that, you know, advisors who get more referrals um, enable the client to participate in, in, in the experience and, you know, just sort of tailor it to their own needs sometimes. And th this sounds like a more sophisticated way than we're used to thinking about that. We're used to thinking about, here's the agenda and we're going to power our way through it. But, you know, what you're talking about is letting the client do some of that design, you know, so that they're in a position to be able to make those decisions. So, I mean, it, to me, it sounds, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more radical than, than it might at first come across. Is that what you're finding with the advisors you're that you're taking through the program? Well, I, I don't think I'd use radical. I might use profound, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, yes. <laughs> there a, there is a profound, a profound yeah. result that comes from it. And the term that we use, Steve, for all of our tools is co-creation. Yeah. So we're not doing anything to a client, and we are not telling them. On the personal side, we see the client as the expert. On the technical side, the advisor is the expert. 
the client is the expert but needs guidance on the personal side, particularly during transition. And so we think of the certified financial transitionist as their thinking partner, as their guide, someone who's been through this before, but never with that one person. So you pay attention to their individuality. Um, people feel really respected when they go through the communication process. No one's ever asked them. And then we show advisors how to put that into their CRM and then follow it and, and how to follow up. Um, that in itself makes an immediate huge difference. Well, it's, you know, we in some of the uh, engagement research we did, we saw this uh, really tight correlation between the quality of a review and engagement, and far more so, as you can imagine, between the frequency of reviews and engagement. And I think, you know, what you're, although I'm grossly oversimplifying it, you're, cre you're co-creating a far more meaningful conversation. So, from a data perspective, I can see how that lines up with deeper engagement, with connection, and, and ultimately with referrals as well. Um, but I, did, I, I just want to make sure I'm capturing, because I know you said nine tools, six modules. We talked a bit about purpose. We talked about communication preferences. Uh, that might not be the correct term, but is that, that what you've been talking about? Is that about that second step or, or tool? And can you maybe make sure we list all of them? Sure. Um, the two that I mentioned, um, and then the decision tree zone, mm -hmm. those are the three of them. Okay. Another one is working on visual one-pagers, not the kind of graphs and charts that come off the, um, the software. Um, and it's not particularly rudimentary, it's somewhere in between. And we use the science of data visualization to guide us with that. If we get it right, we increase recall by 650%. Uh -huh is what their research says. So that is, it's, it's an incredible um, skill set for people that are in overwhelm or fogged or feeling great pressure. Um, it's, it's really a wonderful thing. So we have that, we manage expectations. We have a process to manage personal as well as the expectations of other people. We have a tool to help people who are at their very early stage identify and be be confident that they're okay not to make big financial decisions for the first many months. So we're just looking at their sources of uh, income and liquid assets they could test out or start to take, whether they're taxable, reliable, repeatable like that. So it's a, it's a way to lower the stress level and the urgency of doing things at the very beginning. Another is uh, something we call what has changed and it's touching on 12 aspects of life all the way from um, income to self-care and family and that sort of thing. We ask two or three questions in each topic and just ask uh, the client to indicate if they're confident or if they're uncertain or fearful. So we get a, a nice overview, a 30,000 foot view of this broad landscape. It's a self-assessment, something they can do at the beginning and then a couple a year later, a month later, to see how they're doing, they you'll find that they have some really good areas that they're confident in. So you want to acknowledge that, but you also want to know where they are fearful or uncertain. So it gives you in client directions of, of focus. Um, there's another one on um, touchstone, 
um, understanding what the, the higher feeling that people are looking for in their life. I know that sounds squishy and nanu nanu to many people. Uh, it's, Excellent reference. It's, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and you know what? It is, but it's also profoundly important when you get it right. So, and it takes some training, particularly if you're not inclined in that direction, but anybody can do these. And then the last thing that I think I didn't mention is uh, what if which is a, uh, it's a longer process. Some of these are very short. They're done in a 10 minute conversation. Others take, take more time. And what if it helps people say, well, what if I could write that next chapter of my life and everything I wrote down actually came true? What would I write? That's a pretty big thing. And most people kind of go, oh yeah, sure. And you know, it's just too big. So we, we have a process where we start with a big wish list and then we narrow that down to if you could do anything, not everything. So we get a couple of really strong goals. We help them map out a new narrative. Like uh, it's, it really lends itself to scenario planning. Um, this is great for the growth mindset or mindset reset work that we do is, is running those narratives so people can be thinking about how they want to build their next. Um, and then we test out the, what if the bad things happen? Some people are prevention focused more than expansion focused. Moira Summers is our neuropsychologist. Um, she has a PhD in procrastination, very useful. Um, <laughs> she is- I think a, I can test out of that degree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> um, she's Canadian and uh, lovely, and she helps us understand readiness and depletion and how people are motivated to act or not act. So that's built into our work. We're very science-based. Um, but we don't want to be scientific. We want to be human. And it, what I what I find so fascinating is, you know, we can we can talk about these issues, and we might read an article or a book. But you've said no, we need something new. It's the certified financial transitionist. Can you give us a little perspective on what's involved? So you've talked about obviously some of the tools you use, but what's involved in actually getting that and keeping it? Yeah, it's mostly a virtual program and it is um, monthly um, and we have a textbook, we have um, on-demands, we, we do CE for people, so we have quizzes after the on-demands, we have experience calls and study group calls, it's experiential learning, you're working with the client and you're writing it up and discussing it with your peers and with the trainers. Um, at the end of the 12 months, there's an eight-hour exam um, and we, we are very proud of our exam. We, we have people who that's what they do is they write exams. Um, so once you do that and you have all the assignments, the experience assignments in, um, then if you're a CFP, CFA, um, PFS, SEMA, um, you can hold the um, CEFT is what we call it, designation. And there is a continuing education requirement. Um, most everything we do is um, approved by um, CFP board and uh, usually the others as well. So it's a dual purpose thing. Um, and for 70% uh, of the people who go through it, um, they go on to continuous learning tracks. We have two years of advanced study and then mastery study. So we have a 90% renewal rate. Uh, which helps us understand we're doing something right, but every year we have to earn those renewals. We have to be a continuous learning community. 
And so, Susan, we've, we've talked a lot about uh, the value to clients about this and, and, and why it's important to look at it from this perspective. We, you know, we're, the, the podcast is all about getting referrals. So we'd also like to ask you a little bit about what kind of impact does, does this kind of skill set have on an advisor's business and how he develops it? It's, it's really interesting, Steve. In the beginning days, people thought about advertising that they did this work. Uh, you know, like in traditional advertising. It turns out the referrals is really the strongest way to build your build your business. If you're giving clients a transformational experience over and over again uh, as they meet with you, which is what our, we are designed to, to do, um, they will naturally refer. So referrals go way up. Retention obviously stays very high. But also referrals from centers of influence because usually there's nobody else that has these credentials that can really talk about this. Everybody can talk about it in general, but um, CEFTs are, are really deeply trained. So they can use terms like uh, language impairment and explain where that comes from. And, and a divorce attorney gets it right away that this person is the one that my clients need to go to. Um, so, and you can do seminars, education seminars for COIs and you can do programs for, um, for your clients. Uh, but sometimes just keeping the materials around so people see it and say, what is this? Everybody thinks it's a really cool idea that there's a technical specialist who also understands life transitions. It's um, a thing. Well, and I think you, you also uh, get to the issues that people do talk about, right? I mean, there are mm -hmm. many advanced designations on the technical side, but I know I don't go out to dinner and talk about those things. It wouldn't come up, but <laughs> I mean, maybe that's just me, but, um, but, uh, but the things that I think these kinds of conversations are exactly the kinds of conversations that friends are having with friends or families are having. And, and so it would lead even more naturally to that referral. Uh, my view. Yeah. If you think about it, you don't necessarily want to refer your um, neighbors or your family members to someone because they, they got you a good investment return. There's right. a lot of risk in that. Um, and But to say that, you know, this advisor is really trained in life events. You should see what they did for this widow or this divorced person, how much they helped. Um, if you're the specialist in life events, that is the driver. They say that 70% of people who hire advisors do so because of life events. Many people think that that's actually low. I don't know. But it is what's happening in our, gym, in, in our world. I mean, just look at the baby boomers. Once you hit 50, your life speeds up, and these events happen more frequently and tend to overlap. So it is what's happening in, in our country, uh, in, in our world. When I work in... Um, in, in all the other countries, it's the same thing. This is what drives the business. Yeah, and and just to build on what Julie was saying, you know, I, I it's it's hard for me to imagine clients getting together with friends afterwards and saying, you know, I I talked with my advisor and and this, you know, rotational cyclical um, asset allocation strategy is just fascinating. But 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 you know, but I, but I know that that clients talk with with their friends yeah. about, you know, boy, you know, I met I met with her and she just, you know, she really understood me and she really helped me get my story out and you know, so talking about the things that that you know are going to attract people as referrals. So yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. 
So, uh, so there's going to be uh, a lot of advisors, I think, who are interested in learning more about the f- the formal training that's involved, and we'll make sure we include links to all of this as well. But I'd I'd love to ask you, just as we're we're kind of getting close to wrapping up, that assume someone's looking at that longer term, uh, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. Are there some shorter term things that you think advisors can be doing to make progress in the areas that we've talked about? Um, Yeah, actually, our new website that should be out in two, three weeks now. um, We've been saying that for months, by the way. Uh, but now, but now we mean it. <laughs> so I would say it comes out in the month of May, and uh, we are intentionally building um, CE-based uh, webinars and things like that for advisors who are not in our program. Um, we have articles and we have uh, blog posts on on our website right now that I I hope will be very useful. But we intend to continue with our faculty and our trainers to offer education programming. And we do have, we have workshops. Like uh, there's one that will come, come out this year with uh, Carol Lee Roberts, who is the head of uh, the certified divorce folks. And we're gonna team up and do a one day on half on the technical side of divorce planning and then me on the personal side. So things like that will be coming up and they'll be announced on our, on our website. And we can come to um, areas. We, you know, I, I do a lot of conferences. I think I have twelve more to go um, this year. So I like to be at those things and and give information and education, not not to go sell. And let's not forget, if someone wants a jacket made in Mumbai, uh, you <laughs> are the person to direct them. Um, but uh, look, um, let me just ask you real quickly, where can people find you if they're looking for all of that, uh, those wonderful resources that you just pointed out? Um, easy. It's suddenmoney.com. Awesome. And from there, you can find the email address, info at Sudden Money, our phone number, we're happy to hang out and talk with anybody that has an interest or has a client situation that does happen. If you need a little bit of help, even if you're not part of the community, happy if I have the time to spend some time with you. That's wonderful. Generous offer. And, and Susan, thank you so much. This is, um, I mean, it, it's so deep, a lot of what we're talking about. I feel like we could go on for hours, but um, it's been great to get your perspective and, and really appreciate you being here today. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be with both of you. I love your work and I love your podcast. So I'll be listening, not just for me, but for all the other great people. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> pleasure. Hey folks, Steve again. Thanks for joining us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. So until next time, so long.